Welcome to Coffee, Culture, and the Capital with Sophia and Greg. Hey there, this is Greg Burt, uh, the Vice President of the California Family Council. And today we have a special guest with us, uh, Dean Broyles. Uh, he is the President of the National Center for Law and Policy. Um, he is a constitutional attorney extraordinaire um, that we have been working with for years. Um, and so Sophia isn't going to be on this interview today. She's uh, in the background. Um, but uh, we love to interview folks that have we've been working with up here at the state capitol. And uh, Dean is one of those uh, individuals who has provided us all kinds of help over the years. And uh, he is doing some extraordinary work. And so today we want to, want to bring that to you. And so just to, just to start, I wanted to just let you know a little bit about uh, Dean Broyles. Um, he has a, a Juris Doctorate from uh, Regent University School of Law in Virginia Beach. And actually, uh, Dean and I uh, were going to school at Regent, um, not in the same uh, the college. I was actually uh, studying journalism and public policy, but we were there at the same time and we never knew each other. Um, that's because I guess lawyers didn't want to associate with journalists back then. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so a little more about Dean. Um, he also ha has a bachelor's degrees in sociology from Westmont College in Santa Barbara. Um, and then I was going through your bio, Dean, and it said that uh, before you um, went to graduate school to be a lawyer, you were actually uh, a youth director at a church. Um, when God uh, said, called you to be trained to fight for religious liberty. Um, why don't you tell us a little about, about that? How, how, did you, how did you go from youth pastor to uh, constitutional attorney? Yeah, so back when I was at Westmont College, I was actually thinking of going into full-time ministry, either as a pastor or maybe as a Christian counselor. And... Um, I ended up uh, changing my major to sociology with a minor in religious studies and had been praying for years about what to do and was in youth ministry. And then um, really, I knew I was going to go to probably grad school, but I didn't know for what. And it was during that time that um, God almost audibly, might as well have been audible, uh, spoke to me, tapped me on the shoulder and in so many words within about a 24 hour period, it was almost like I heard thou shalt go to law school. And so I, I kind of was jokingly um, told my friends, I said, hey, I don't wanna be a lawyer. I don't know what this is all about. But when I heard that um, they were training lawyers at Regent University to um, fight for religious freedom and constitutional rights, I got excited about that. And so I was blessed to be able to go there and be mentored by Jay Sekulow and some of the other staff at the um, American Center for Law and Justice and Constitutional Litigation. And it was a great experience. And I was, I'm sad now that I know you, Greg, that I, we didn't meet then. I know. We would have been great friends, I'm sure. Um, but we had to meet afterwards when we came, both came, uh, came back to California um, after 10 or so years. So let's see, after you graduated uh, at Regent, uh, you came, 
I think back to San Diego because that's where you're from or at least uh, that's where you're, I know you've been all over the place, but. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a native California, Californian, but I grew up for eight and a half years when I was younger in Europe and Austria and Germany. And then my dad, part of the reason I was passionate about ministry is my dad was a pastor and a missionary and started Young Life in Austria. And so after we came back, I graduated from Carmel High School and then went on to uh, Westmont in Santa Barbara, which is where I met my, my wife, Shona. And uh, we got married in Julian. So she's she's a native San Diegan. And so after law school, um, we ended up back here. Okay, great. And so I guess you were in private practice for a little bit. Is that right? And before you started your organization, tell us about that. Yeah, so um, I was, I you know, I'm getting old now. I graduated uh, from law school back in 1995 and started practicing law and started doing religious liberty cases right away and uh, got additional training from Alliance Defending Freedom at their National Litigation Academies and then started doing the work and then incorporated the National Center for Law and Policy. Back then it was called the Western Center for Law and Policy back in 2007 and started moving towards doing this type of work more full time. And um, God just really blessed us. And we're still here in blue California, uh, you know, stirring things up and making a difference by God's favor and grace. That's right. Well, that's where we that's where we need constitutional attorneys here in California, where they don't they don't typically respect the Constitution up here at the state capitol, as you well know. Uh, so t tell us uh, some of the type of cases you have covered over the years here in California. Um, a real wide variety of pro-life, pro-family, pro-religious liberty, legal and public policy projects. Um, All right. I would just, you know, things like we, we um, do a lot of um, Bible club cases for Christian uh, Christian clubs on campuses. Um, we've represented street evangelists who are harassed by the police and others. We've represented um, in the pro-life arena. I, I, I was able to serve as co-counsel in Niffler versus Becerra, which is a key Supreme Court case uh, that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court and was decided in 2018. Um, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that was, I was here in the legislature when that was passed. Uh, there was a bill that was passed um, to, there, it was a bill to tell pregnancy care centers that they were going to have to let all their clients know where they could get free abortions. And they were going to have to communicate a government message. Uh, here's where you can get free abortions, because that's not something that a pro-life center would tell their clients. They're uh, there to uh, provide information and help uh, on how to have their child. Um, and so how did that, vi I mean, why, why don't you tell us about the case, how that blatantly violated the, the Constitution? Yeah, the um, California thought it would be a great idea to try to run, run pro-life pregnancy care centers out of California. And they started by trying to compel them to engage in government speech to tell women coming into the clinics where they could get free and low cost abortions supported by the government. And um, obviously if you're a life affirming pregnancy care center who is against 
uh, murdering babies in utero or killing babies in utero, which is, a, you know, what abortion is, then obviously they didn't want to do that. So it was a compelled speech case. And um, the state was trying to control both the content and the viewpoint of, uh, of the private speech of the pro- these pro-life pregnancy care centers that were mostly nonprofit organizations. Right. And then you won. What, what did the Supreme Court end up saying? Well, yeah, it's always great to win, especially at the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, yeah, this, that was a very strong uh, ruling in favor of speech. And, and, and people don't always realize that the freedom of speech and freedom of expression um, protects religious speech explicitly. And so um, that was religious speech that was being compelled by the government. And there was some really great, strong language that came from the justices in that opinion that not only is cited in you know pro-life cases but in speech cases more generally the nifla case is being cited over and over again um in in other rulings that have come out um, both at the u.s supreme court and lower federal courts so it was a great landmark ruling in favor of pro-life speech right and i think one of the the key things i remember from that is the the state government was saying hey because we license you we give you a license to do business. Therefore, we can regulate what you do. And they simply uh, turned uh, speech into, well, we can regulate your content, your, your conduct, right? right? As, that's what licensing does. It regulates conduct. Um, and they turn speech into conduct. And the Supreme Court says, said, no, just because you license someone doesn't mean you get to control or dictate their speech. Did I get that right? Or Yeah, they, they tried to say that, you know, it's quasi government speech because we're licensing you and that we can regulate you for that reason. And that argument was soundly rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that the case NIFLA is quoted a lot and it was, you know, the, the, the precedent that NIFLA created in 2018 was really important in another case we participated in this year, which is a 303 Creative versus Elena's case, where um, the U.S. Supreme Court said California, I'm sorry, Colorado, uh, could not uh, regulate the speech of of a a lady who wanted to do uh, wedding uh, websites, because there was a non-discrimination law that said that if she did websites, she had to do websites for same-sex couples. And it's kind of like the Jack Phillips case or the Baronel Stutzman case, but this finally, it finally solidified really um, the free speech or the religious free speech of wedding vendors and people who participated in weddings. It was a another landmark uh, ruling that's related to NIFLA. Oh, that's great. So, Dean, I know we've relied on you here at the California Family Council, um, especially <laughs> when we have laws that are introduced that we know are unconstitutional and we need, and, and we can say they're unconstitutional, but since I'm not a lawyer, I'm actually a, a journal, trained journalist and a government policy person. Sometimes it, uh, it's very important that we have attorneys who reaffirm what we say about uh, these bills being introduced. And so You've, you've written some great briefs over the years um, explaining to legislators why certain bills that have been introduced are unconstitutional. And you've also come up and testified to that effect. Um, and I remember, uh, I'm not sure I remember this, but I remember you came up and testified 
for a bill that we had helped introduce. Um, it was a bill uh, dealing with sex ed, uh, and it was simply saying, hey, uh, if sex ed is going to be taught in elementary schools, that parents should um, have an opt-in. You should get permission from parents before you teach sex ed, graphic sex ed, in elementary school. Um, and I remember, do you remember coming up and testifying for that? I do. <laughs> I do. Uh, it, it was quite the hearing, if you remember. Um, it it kind of got, do you remember <laughs> oh, why everybody got upset um, in the audience? I don't even remember that. Gosh. I mean, I remember testifying. I, I believe that's the, the, the hearing where I testified was a, with a Muslim physician. Um, that's right. And um, yeah, it was a very contested hearing with a lot of people speaking out um, on behalf of, and, and, and mostly on behalf of the bill. Um, and it was a simple bill that just, you know, as you said, would have simply notified parents, hey, a, you have a right to look at the materials and right. they're going to be posted online. And B, you have the right, you should have the right to opt out. And it should have been a no brainer. Um, but, you know, things that should be simple are not always simple. And, and, and definitely there's a, we've seen it, there's not only an anti kind of uh, constitution or anti First Amendment attitude in Sacramento. We've seen a lot in these hearings, but there's really almost an anti-parent or anti-family attitude where they, they believe the educators and the, the school districts know best on how to educate your child. No, we see that over and over. Um, the experts, if they've got a degree or if they've been teaching for a while, they obviously know how what kids need to know regarding sex. They know uh, better than parents. Uh, how they should deal with kids confused about their gender or sexual orientation. They have a, a very particular worldview that it's not Christian. And they believe that those who disagree with that worldview are actually doing harm uh, to kids. And because they feel that it's their obligation to protect kids from harm, that means they're obliga obligated to protect kids from their own parents who are teach or who are simply saying things that they don't like. We're not talking about physical harm. We're talking about, they view the Christian faith uh, as harmful, um, especially related to gender identity. Um, and this year, um, uh, we, we were, you were very helpful when we, um, we, had, we had tried to introduce a bill to with uh, another assembly member, uh, his name was Bill Asaley, uh, and it was simply a notification policy that our, our friend Aaron Friday um, had come up with. And this bill simply said that, hey, if a, if a child is uh, asking to be uh, a different gender by changing their name and pronoun, if they want to be on a different uh, team that doesn't match their actual sex, or they want to use the opposite sex bathrooms, that means they're coming out publicly at school everybody knows, then you have to tell the parents. It was, it was a very simple bill. We thought, how, how are they going to object to this? But object they did. Um, they refused to have a hearing about the bill at the, uh, at the legislature. So we decided to try and put together a policy that we could introduce to schools, that local school districts could introduce. And that's where we really needed Dean's help 
to put together a, a policy that was going to be constitutional. Um, uh, why don't you explain? So how, explain a little bit about that, Dean. What, what your uh, how you helped us and uh, what the what the policy actually said and how it is how the policy we came up with is is actually constitutional. Yeah, so I think it was late spring or early summer. Um, I was asked to help out with uh, and be a part of the Coalition for Parental Rights. That was a push to get the policy or and legal organizations together to support a statewide initiative to draft a model parental rights policy, parental notification policy, and to to go take it to the streets, so to speak, and get local school districts um, to adopt it. Um, and kind of the background to that is, you know, during COVID, a lot of parents started seeing for the first time what their kids were actually learning in sex ed and what they were being exposed to in the public schools. And so in a lot of districts, including in California, parents rose up and started electing conservative majorities. And so there was a kind of a, co uh, a lot of facts and factors and, and, circumstances came together for a perfect storm to move forward with parental rights. And so um, we helped uh, develop the policy that was ultimately initially implemented in Chino Hills. But um, one of the things I think that we helped with the most, which at the time we didn't know would be so significant, is we started drafting legal memos to school districts in support of the model policy that started being circulated throughout the state and um, um, started making a big impact. And, and even in spite of threats from the governor and threats from uh, Tony Thurman, the superintendent of public schools and AG Rob Bonta, um, a lot of school districts started adopting parental notification policies. All right. And, and then there, there was a great, um, just unrelated, uh, there was a federal case down in your area um, that uh, filed by two teachers who uh, felt that their religious liberty and their religious uh, freedom of speech was being violated by a school that was making them keep secrets from parents about kids' uh, gender identity. Um, they were having to deceive parents by calling a kid one pronoun and name during class, but when they dealt with the parents, they had to revert to their original name and pronoun. And they just, this was, this was crazy and they didn't want to do it. And they fought a lawsuit and they had a great decision. Can you, at least initially, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I'll start with our memo. The first memo we wrote in June talked about parental rights and the 14th amendment. And um, a lot of people don't know that the 14th Amendment protects parental rights, and it's been ruled through the Due Process Clause to do so for over 100 years. There's a lot of solid rulings at the U.S. Supreme Court. And so our, the position we took in the legal memo is that um, uh, not only did, could school districts not lie to parents and conceal a child's gender dysphoria from them, but they actually had a, had a duty to inform parents um, because all the case law has said for, for over a hundred years that parents have the primary responsibility to educate, raise, and um, provide for the health, safety, and welfare of their children. And so the school district, you know, was, was hijacking that in a sense by 
keeping uh, gender dysphoria, or, you know, which is a real mental health issue for, for, for kids from parents when parents were needed the most to help their kids. And so fast forward to September from June, um, we were very happy and pleased and gratified when a federal district court judge in San Diego County ruled against the Escondido Unified School District. Um, and basically on behalf of two teachers who were um, put on administrative leave because they had requested religious accommodation from a policy that required them to conceal information from parents regarding a child's gender dysphoria. And so um, the judge ruled very strongly that um, keeping those types of secrets from parents caused a trifecta of harm. It harmed the parents, it harmed the student, and it harmed the teachers who, these teachers were Christians and they wanted to share important health and safety information uh, because of their religious beliefs with the parents and the school district was trying to forbid them from doing so. And so the Mirabelli case um, uh, is an important precedent that we've really used in our third uh, and most recent legal memo to support um, school districts who wanted to start notifying parents. And our position now is that school districts definitely have an affirmative constitutional duty to partner with parents and not lie to them and give them accurate information about the health, safety, and welfare of their student um, or their child, uh, their minor student, um, including on the issue of gender dysphoria. Right. No, that's great. I mean, I guess, and so, but we're we're having so far um, the results from state courts are are so far a little bit different. I mean, it's a little more unclear what the state courts are due because we did have the attorney general sue. Uh, Chino Valley and the judge uh, temporarily temporarily put their policy of transparency on hold. I know that they're going to have a a long a, a bigger trial coming up this next year. Um, what do you anticipate happening at the state courts? Are you know I, I know a federal court supersedes a state court, but uh, it sounds like this is going to be in litigation a while. Yeah, I mean, as soon as I heard about that case in state court, it's it's pretty common that state court judges do not, uh, they tend to favor state law, and, including state constitutional provisions. But one of the things we've been writing about in the memos and trumpeting to everybody who will listen is the whole concept of Civics 101, which is a supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution that it, where the U.S. Constitution speaks, it's a supreme law of the land and it overrides and supersedes and quote unquote trumps any state law or any state constitutional provision to the contrary. So Bonta and, 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 and uh, Thurman and others have been running around the state saying, you know, these policies or notifying parents um, violates uh, state law. First of all, that's not true. Um, the policies don't violate state law, but even if they did violate state law, um, the federal parental rights protected by the 14th Amendment would trump them. But right. this judge, this judge um, ruled uh, in the state case, not on the privacy issue, which was um, the main issue that the state argued in the Mirabella case, but he, he took a different tact and said, aha, I'm not going to look at privacy. I'm going to look at student um, equal protection rights and non-discrimination rights. And I'm going to rule on that basis that that this somehow this state uh, equal protection right of students um, to be free from discrimination, you know, trumps parental rights or any argument that the 
that the uh, Chino Valley may be making to defend the case. Now, one of the there's two good results in that case. One is the judge, even though he got the law wrong, allowed a, a parental group to intervene, parents to intervene. But secondly, he didn't really put the whole Chino Valley policy on hold. He only ruled against two of the provisions, and he actually upheld for for the time being the third provision that allowed um, parents to be notified if there was a change to the official record of the student. And so part of what we've done with the help of Aaron Friday, um, we've worked, Aaron and I worked together to develop a, a policy that passes muster even under the state ruling um, based on primarily on the issue of, of, of records. And so uh, not only do we think that Chino is still constitutional and it'll be upheld ultimately, but we also have a alternative policy ready to go for school districts who want to start notifying parents and don't want, don't want to have to wait till everything gets sorted out in the courts. But ultimately, I believe that the, the analysis of the federal ruling based on parental rights and the religious liberty rights of the teachers will prevail. All right. I thought one of the craziest arguments the state was making is that children have privacy rights from their own parents, right? like a five-year-old has a right to keep his private life separate has a, has a private life a five-year-old hey i got some things that my parents shouldn't know about and it's up to me to decide whether my parents know about something as significant as changing your gender identity right i mean that i've never heard that applied anywhere else um a parent signs off on everything especially with little kids right so how in the world could they possibly argue that a five-year-old has privacy rights that, that's found in the, you know, uh, the protection of pri the privacy rights that are, are put in the California Constitution? Yeah, I mean, the same analysis applies to equal protection rights. I mean, basically what the, the state court ruled is that vis-a-vis -vis their parents, students have equal protection rights. No, and... That's not true. You only have privacy rights or equal protection rights versus um, versus really a state or state actor. I mean, the state can those are protections that you are protected really from the government, not from other parties, especially your parents. And so it's just insane to rule. If you start ruling that children have constitutional rights against their parents, you're basically wiping out any right of parents to raise their children. And so it's insane. It, I mean, if we go down this road, it, so it's it's cultural suicide. So, you, so kids can't sue their parents for discrimination? No. <laughs> or, or, or violating their free speech rights? Or violating their privacy rights. I mean, uh, ki kids don't have privacy rights vis-a-vis -vis their parents, and, and, and neither do they have rights of non-discrimination against their parents. They only have rights of non-discrimination really against the government or against an employer, but not vis-a-vis -vis their parents. No court in the history of the United States has ever ruled that um, uh, children have such rights against their parents. And it's the, the current Supreme Court's not going to go that insane kind of anarchistic route. It's just, it, we, we can't have a functioning culture or society if we go down this road. And I, that's what I don't think people realize that this notification policy that we're pushing, this is like the this is the line in the sand that we cannot let go, right? Because because once the state establishes 
in their mind that kids have privacy rights from their own parents, we're, we're, we're done. I mean, we don't, the, the state rules us in our, in our children. We are just custodians and we'll have to obey the state on every parental decision we make. Uh, it will be up to them to decide whether we're doing a good job of uh, uh, teaching our kids the right values, right? And so it's how do, how do we convince folks <laughs> that this is really as bad and as serious as it really is? Well, what you're saying is has been parroted and repeated in a lot of the Supreme Court precedent for the last hundred years is the statement is clearly that in America, children belong to their parents and families. They don't belong to the state. Right. It's only in communist countries, right, where it has been declared, like Romania or former Soviet Union, that children were declared belonging to the state and not to their parents and families. And we do not want to go down that road because it's it's really the the family is the basic uh, building block of cult, all culture and society. If you start picking apart and tearing apart the family and having um the state transgress boundaries and uh, basically acting as parents or in place of the parents. That's game set match for a healthy culture. Right. Well, let's talk about some of the other cases you've been working on. Um, you know, during the COVID uh, era, uh, the state shut down all kinds of churches. And really, I think you were the first one that took the state to court, if I'm not mistaken. Um, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I was the first one to raise a three alarm fire about it. I think somebody beat us to the court by about a week or so in Riverside. But I was trying to get the both the local California and national organizations to care and start fighting it. And a lot of the organizations I called that are great organizations who I will not name on the air now, were too busy helping people get government funds, PPE money, you know, to keep going rather than focusing on keeping the churches open. And so I was distraught and I wrote some op-eds and articles about it. And as a result of the articles I was writing, some of the other organizations started referring clients to me because they said, we're, we're kind of too concerned or maybe afraid to take these cases now. But, you know, it's like the Mikey likes it uh, commercials from the you know, 70s and 80s, like Dean, Dean will do it. Dean's crazy enough to take this on when everybody's afraid in the first few months of COVID. And so, you know, I wrote an op-ed called Coronavirus Civil Rights in the Church, where I was just, I was upset at the government for overreaching and discriminating. At that point, I was upset with the churches and pastors for being silent and willingly shutting down for untold months on end. And I was really concerned. And so, we filed a, a, a case, an early case um, called Cross-Cultural Christian Center versus Newsom, And shortly thereafter, a lot of groups started putting their toes in the water and started within a few you know, weeks or months filing other cases. And I was glad to see a lot of people stepping up. At the end of the day, there were probably 15 to 20 cases against California alone, in California alone. And I think California probably paid out 15 to $20 million in attorney's fees for blatantly violating um, the civil rights of churches and discriminating and targeting churches. And churches, for example, during that period 
we're the only organization uh, or, or entity on the essential list. Uh, they were on the list of essential businesses, but they were the only place where you couldn't go or be in person. They had to do everything by video, right? So there, that was clear discrimination. And then later on, you know, California was the only state insane enough to ban indoor singing and worship. And so just the parade of horribles went on and on. And at the end of the day, um, we prevailed um, after Amy Coney Barrett replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court. And all the cases that we were losing, we started winning. And But it took five wins at the Supreme Court before California finally waved the wet, white flag and stopped discriminating against churches. Right. And then I know you've also dealt with a lot of employees who lost their jobs um, over COVID vaccination requirements. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So after the church cases, I was kind of wiped out. So I went on sabbatical for three months. But right before I left, we trained with the help of ADF and others. We trained over probably between 180 to 100 attorneys nationwide and how to handle those cases because a lot of attorneys don't do employment law or if they've done employment law, they've never had a religious accommodation case. So Alan Reinock from the Church States Council and I did some training. And then uh, when I got back from sabbatical, I realized a lot of people still hadn't been helped. So we started helping uh, mostly nurses against sharp health care um, and then ultimately um, some some other uh, people. We, we just settled a case last a few weeks ago against NBC Universal, the big multinational media company. We're, about, we're in the process of settling a case against a big uh, Fortune 500 insurance company. So we've done mostly medical cases involving healthcare workers, but we've also done other cases. And basically the, the idea there is that employers have to accommodate your religion, your religious objections or religious concerns in the workplace unless they can prove an undue hardship. And after the Supreme Court ruled this summer, it's harder now for employers to prove an undue hardship. And so a lot of employers were not complying with either federal Title VII, uh, which is clear law in that area. And also um, in California, the FIHA, the Fair Employment and Housing Act. So a lot of employers were blatantly discriminating against the religious beliefs and practices and uh, of um, of their people, and so we've we've gotten great results. Um, we've either settled all their cases, or we have one case going to trial against Sharp Healthcare, Gianella versus Sharp, in April. We just signed up a case against Kaiser on behalf of a nurse in Riverside County. So um, these cases are ongoing, and um, if we still have time, I'd like to talk to you about Church of, my, the Church of Compassion case too. Yeah, that was my next question. This is another case you have defending a church's religious liberty after they receive some government funds for something. Why, why don't you explain? Yeah, so the Church of Compassion is a small um, church in El Cajon, California, here in San Diego County. And they have a really wonderful Christian preschool on their campus. And they serve, I don't know, I think about 80 to 100 uh, students and families there. and. For years, for the last, I believe, approximately 20 years, they've been helping feed poor and immigrant uh, families and children through the federal USDA food program. And that program funnels money from the federal government through, through the state 
And recently the California Department of Social Services took that over from the uh, education department. And, uh, but this year, uh, this last year, I'm sorry, they decided to impose a new restriction. And they said, even though you're a church and even though you're a Christian preschool, we want you to sign this non-discrimination statement that says you agree to not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And, and, and not just in the preschool with your teachers and the students, but in the church. And so this would have really just decimated and blown up um, their biblical worldview on human sexuality. And it was the state again, like a NIFLA trying to um, tell a private Christian organization what to believe and how to act. And, um, you know, it affected their bathrooms and pronoun usage. And I mean, just their, who, who their youth pastor was, if a transgender youth pastor wanted to work there, they couldn't deny them if they agreed to this non-discrimination policy. I mean, just insane stuff of government overreach, really Orwellian type, type restrictions, even, you know, even beyond what we saw in NIFLA. And so this was a must win case. We filed a motion for preliminary injunction after we filed the complaint. We invited um, our friends from Alliance Defending Freedom and Advocates for Faith and Freedom on the team to help us. And it was a fantastic result before we even um, went to court on the motion for, for preliminary injunction. The California Department of Social Services waved the white flag and as the federal government had done recently at the federal level and said, hey, we we're going to grant you a religious exemption. We're going to give you uh, over fifty thousand dollars in back food money that we've cut off for almost the last year. And we're going to pay one hundred sixty thousand dollars in attorney's fees and make sure that religious institutions know that they have a religious exemption if they object to the sexual orientation and gender identity non-discrimination provision. So it was a, we're, we haven't done our official announcement of that result yet because we're waiting to have the point of being able to dismiss the case, but um, it, it's, it's gonna be a great victory for religious freedom. Wow, that's great. And so what is, what's the religion, what is the, constitutional principle that prevents the state to if they i think a lot of times the state hands out cash and with that cash comes strings like we'll give you this but you need to do this right um and they do that with all kinds of things whether it's education whether it's handing money to a, a city i mean it's one of the ways the federal government controls all kinds of things but the state does it too so how is it that they could not do the same thing to the, the church? What constitutional provisions protect us from that type of action? So, yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's really just the basic First Amendment 101, um, the freedom of speech and the free exercise of religion. And there's been several cases decided at the Supreme Court recently that basically say if the government's doling out money um to organizations they have to do it on a neutral basis they right. can't say i'm not going to give it to you because i disagree with your religious ideology or your re religious orthodoxy and uh, there there was a case um, um trinity lutheran uh, was a big case that the u.s supreme court decided in the last five or six years um where 
a certain state was giving out these rubber chips from ground up um, ground up tires to okay. be to put on playground surfaces, right? And right. they said, well, because of our because of our state constitution, we can't give money to a religious organization. So we're not going, even though we're giving this money to all sorts of private and public schools, we're not going to give funding for these, you know, rubber chips, you know, so that you're, you're, you know, the Christian kids will scrape their knees, but the, uh, the non-Christian schools, you know, will be safe. So it's, it's that kind of, it's basically a neutrality, non-discrimination provision that's really mandated and required by the first amendment which requires the government protection of the re religious free exercise and um, freedom of speech. And so you can't, in other words, the government, when they're giving out money, they have to be neutral and they can't discriminate. All right. Well, that, that's, that is great that the Supreme Court's now blatantly, not blatantly, they're, they're over and over we see decision after decision where the government has been discriminating for years against Christian organizations um, saying, hey, you know, we can't give money to you because you're religious, as, as though that makes the discrimination okay, right? Wasn't there also a case in Maine where they had a, a program, they were handing out uh, uh, money for schools, um, private schools in yeah. places where there weren't any public schools. They were handing out on an equal basis, but then they said, well, we can't hand it out to a religious school. Um, and the Supreme Court said, no, if, if you're handing it out to, to private schools, you can't discriminate against religious schools, right? Um, doesn't matter if you don't like their ideology, right? Because so that is, yeah, that, that, that is the way that the, the state controls speech, right? I mean, um, like yeah, a lot there's an interesting historical footnote related to that. Um, and it really has to do with the anti-Catholic attitude. There were these Blaine amendments that were passed yeah. a lot of state constitutions, I think 80 to hundred years ago to try to keep Catholic schools and, you know, kind of pushed to the side and, and religious schools pushed to the side. And a lot of the state constitutions, including California said things like you can never give state money to a religious institution. Right. And right. so they're relying on those amendments to say that we can't give we can't give this money out. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court has basically said the Blaine amendments are unconstitutional because they require the the state to discriminate and the state can't discriminate. Right. right. So that's great. Well, Dean, um, I think our time has come to an end. Uh, is there any, you know, remaining things uh, maybe you wanted to say that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Um, I think we covered most everything I wanted to talk about. Um, let me look here real quick. Yeah, I think we covered everything. Um, oh, San Diego uh, Pregnancy Care Centers. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you have time, but yeah, well, this happened. We had a, uh, a supervisor down there in San Diego um, who decided that she was going to introduce uh, not a bill, kind of like an, uh, an, in an initiative or, hey, I'm presenting this. Um, I don't know what they call it. It's not a bill, but it's a, a directive. Or a directive. Hey, uh, hey, I want to. I want to look into suing 
and closing down all the pregnancy care centers because they're fake. Um, and uh, that was introduced once. Uh, they had a vote. There was a two-to-two -two tie, and then it never came back, even though the vacancy that was filled by a pro-abortion candidate who's now been elected, uh, they didn't bring it back. So tell us about that and what I missed and didn't explain right. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to name names. It was Tara Lawson-Remmer, who's okay. a, on the Board of Supervisors, who had close relationship with um, Planned Parenthood, who came on and wanted to, thought it was a great idea to, to, to pass an ordinance that would have required uh, the county spend $500,000 of taxpayer money to start a public campaign against life-affirming pregnancy care centers. And so she she bl said blatantly defamatory things like that they were fraudulent, they were fake clinics, and they were, you know, tricking women and breaking the law and this and that. And so she also wanted, the second step of it was gonna be to authorize the county council to figure out legal ways to start suing these uh, pregnancy care centers into oblivion. And so she wanted to just wipe them off the map. And right. so if she'd been successful, I mean, think about it, it would have been only uh, places like uh, Planned Parenthood who would, would still be standing. And so, and I, I wrote a very strong four page letter um, and then shortly thereafter, Tara Lawson Remmer removed and withdrew her plan and basically said, you know, your plan, I, I, I cited a lot from Niffle versus Becerra, which is the case we talked about earlier and said, your plan is blatantly unconstitutional. If you pass it and damage my clients, you will be sued. You will pay out millions of dollars in damages and attorney's fees and you will lose. And, uh, this will be a great embarrassment for the county because what she was doing, she was trying to hijack government to target uh, pro-life speech, right? The viewpoint right. and content discrimination blatantly. And so even worse than, far worse than even Nifla versus Becerra was because she, I mean, her stated purpose was to wipe out and eradicate life-affirming pregnancy care centers. Ironically, um, there are 16 of them, 13 of which were actually medically licensed by the state of California. Right. So she was jumping into something. She had no idea what she was doing. And we're very happy that it was withdrawn and, and babies still have at least 16 safe spaces in San Diego County. That's great. Well, that's why attorneys like you are necessary. Uh, that's why MA pro-life uh, pregnancy centers are so unnecessary in our communities. We need to all rally behind them when they're attacked by legislators or by, you know, elected officials, anyone who, you know, or even our attorney general is, is put out warnings about these fake clinics, right? Never actually naming the clinic he's talking about or calling out, you know, what was said that was actually, you know, that they have, they have a problem with. Um, it's just slander. Um, and uh, they're using the government to slander organizations. And, you know, their freedom of speech has its limits, right? Um, you can't libel or slander, knowingly slander someone um, to, to destroy their reputation, to ruin their organization, right? I mean, there's... I want to give a quick shout out to Sophia Laurie because 
from California Family Council because she came down during some of the early skirmishes and spoke out publicly against it in uh, at one of the meetings and did a fantastic job. So I'm grateful for California Family Council and for your whole team. Hey, well, we love working with you, Dean. I hope for many uh, years to come that we'll be partnership, have a partnership together. But um, thanks so much for your time. And uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of what you're up to, how do they get a hold of you? Or, or, you know, wants to, wants to get your help. Yeah. Our website is nclplaw.org. N as in Nancy, C as in cat, L as in Lima, P as in Peru, and then law, all one word.org. And you can visit us there. We're also on Facebook and, um, um, there's all of our contact information is on our website and, and also on Facebook. So yeah, we're, we're excited to partner with with you and other organizations and continue to fight the good fight for faith here in california great take care and merry thank you god bless